This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Springs Congressman Doug Lamborn has thrown his support behind a plan to essentially create a separate military service for space. Critics, though, say it could end up hurting his district, which already has a huge space and military presence. We reached Lamborn, a Republican, early this morning to talk about that and other issues in the news, including health care and Russian interference in the election. Congressman, welcome to the program. Hello. Good to talk with you, Ryan. I do want to start uh, with health care because it's the big story today. Um, you and I are speaking before the Senate releases its latest replacement for Obamacare. Uh, I just wonder what you'll be watching most closely. Obviously, how they deal with the Medicaid expansion is a critical issue. Uh, funding of the opioid crisis uh, is something everyone is watching, I think. Also, what they do with measures to make premiums more affordable in the future is important as well. So those are some of the key elements. But also, Ryan, to me personally, and many of us in the House, we want to make sure that the pro-life protections that we had in the AHCA, uh, defunding of Planned Parenthood and sending that money to community health centers instead, of which there are many more in the country than uh, Planned Parenthood clinics by a factor of 21 to 1, Uh, we think that that's better for health and insurance and for life itself. So that's another thing I'm personally watching for. Very quickly on Medicaid, what direction do you want to see that funding go? Well, I uh, I want to make sure that we don't spend so much money that we keep um, running huge deficits every year. But I want to make sure that those who are in need and can't care for themselves, have access to Medicaid. But the expansion, which included, let's say, males who had no dependents and were able to work on Medicaid, I think that that was a step in the wrong direction. Do you know how many people qualified uh, in, in that category, men who could work but qualify? No, but I know that that was definitely one of the expansions. You know, Medicaid was originally intended for the elderly, the infirm, uh, mothers with children, and dependent children. Uh, So that was definitely an expansion from the original mission under Barack Obama. But I don't have the percentage uh, with me right now. Uh, Just briefly, do you think the crafting of this legislation, I guess both on the House and the Senate side, uh, because both chambers have been taking a crack at this, do you think it's been transparent enough? Oh, yeah, I do. I do. I mean, uh, I think the Senate strategy waiting and doing some of it behind closed doors is when you release preliminary drafts that are not yet finalized, that just gets uh, critics working overtime, sometimes on false information, you know, sometimes on incomplete or changing information. So I think it's legitimate to have a uh, finished product for the world to see before you take the next step in, in this particular case anyway. All right. Uh, To this idea of a separate military service focused on space. So it was proposed by a member of the House's Armed Services Committee, of which you are also a member. Uh, Critics have dismissed it as a Star Trek-like space federation. Um, How do you see it? What's the need here you want to address? The threat, I suppose, fundamentally. Absolutely, Ryan. And I think everyone agrees that the U.S. is falling behind in funding and getting quickly up into space are our latest and best resources. The, Ch- the Chinese and the Russians 
are taking major steps. Uh, in fact, both of them do have a separate uh, space force or space core, whatever you call it, uh, in their countries, and we're lagging in that regard. But they, uh, but, but we take too long to put satellites into space, and they're so expensive. Now, they, they have exquisite and wonderful capabilities, uh, but they're also vulnerable. So we need to do a better job of marshalling our resources to get space, uh, the latest space technology into space. And I think that that means emphasizing it within the military, making it a separate uh, core, sort of like the Marine Corps, which is still under the Navy, but has a separate uh, chief of staff that's on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and uh, has more ability to protect its funding so it doesn't get siphoned off for other things. So I think if you talk to anyone in the military, Ryan, they will agree, or anyone in civilian life who's studied this as well, that we are losing ground to our near peers. And what's the and we what's, need to take steps to change that. What's the effect of that? So you talk about not getting satellites up cheaply enough or quickly enough. Um, what does that mean for the national defense? Okay, what that means, Ryan, is that if it takes 10 years from drawing board to launch to get a satellite into space, you do not have the latest technology. And if you spend a billion dollars on a satellite, that's a very, perhaps very capable, but very vulnerable piece of equipment. So in both cases, we need to, the ability to move faster and cheaper and to cut through bureaucracy, basically. If our space assets were ever to be attacked by the Russian or Chinese or whomever, we would lose our ability to communicate between our armed services. It, we basically are people on the ground overseas. Uh, the men and women in uniform defending us would be blind, deaf, and dumb. Space defense, as it were, used to be part of something called U.S. Space Command, which was based at uh, Peterson Air Force Base in the Springs. And uh, it sort of folded in 2002 into U.S. Strategic Command, which is in Nebraska. I'll say that the Air Force does have a space presence in the Springs, though. Um, According to the Colorado Springs Gazette, the Air Force's Space Command, which oversees space and cyberspace for the military, has cut $1 billion from its budget since 2013, but space spending is slated to grow about 20% next year. Now, those previous cutbacks were part of the reason retired Air Force General Gene Renart has expressed concerns about uh, this proposal we're talking about, saying that uh, the military would perhaps be better served by putting more money into existing programs. And so I don't see what establishing another headquarters does, and I certainly don't believe that it, it creates in some fashion, uh, more capability to the global warfighting interaction of our military. Space is certainly an important element of of how we would fight any future conflict, but having a separate space force, if you will, to a large degree, I believe, takes away from our ability to fund the programs we really need funded today and for the next 10 years. Can I get your reaction? General, retired General Renewart is a wonderful warrior and military uh, flag officer who has done great things for our country, and I just respect him so highly. And he actually is identifying something that I totally agree with. 
Congress, through the BCA, Budget Control Act, which has set up sequestration, which I voted against, has allowed military funding. And this happened under Barack Obama. We're starting to correct it under Donald Trump, but we're not there yet. Even though we make a big step in the right direction this year, a huge step toward proper funding of space in the military in general. Um, But we have let funding lag. And that's, I think, a problem that I 100% agree with uh, Mr. Renuard on. Now, when it comes to the structure, though, of how to most effectively have space get the job done, right now, I take the position that no one is really in charge of space. And it, uh, for instance, you have 50 uh, Air Force uh, staff generals now. Only one of them is devoted to space. Now, Heather Wilson, the new secretary, has a proposal to add a second one, uh, but that would only still be two out of 51. I think space is not getting the emphasis that it deserves, and it's not getting the resources because it doesn't have its proper structure within the Air Force. Uh, Now, anytime you propose dramatic change, there is resistance for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Congress had to force the Pentagon to do uh, drones, UAVs. Uh, We had to force the Pentagon to do MRAPs, which really helped save soldiers' lives in Iraq. Uh, So uh, from IEDs, uh, from roadside explosives, we have a responsibility of oversight in Congress, and sometimes that means We disagree, and we set a different course. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, Congressman Doug Lamborn of Colorado Springs is on the line with us. I want to say that others have said that establishing this uh, space service, if you will, would in the long run hurt your own district. Uh, The person credited with initially raising the idea, Representative Mike Rogers, is from Alabama, which has a strong NASA presence, of course. And the thinking is that that state would try to house this space branch and could possibly take jobs and money away from the springs. Uh, Now, I I realize you're looking out both for the national defense, but uh, also representing your own district. What are your concerns there, if any? Well, we are sworn to protect and defend the Constitution, and and the national defense is imperative. You're right on that, Ryan. However, this actually does help the 5th District. Uh, It does bring jobs and emphasis and importance and clout to Colorado Springs, but that's not why I'm doing it. Um, Even though it actually helps my district, I don't want to let parochial concerns cloud my vision. Uh, This is definitely good for the national security. Uh, And I've talked with Mike Rogers extensively about this. Air Force Space Command, which is in Colorado Springs, would be elevated. uh, So that promotion, the possibility of additional jobs, if that's what the Air Force decides, because, by the way, the Air Force is still in the driver's seat on much of this, and I, and I want them to work with us on it. I'd like to wrap up with a, a question of defense, maybe not in space, but in cyberspace. Uh, the question of Russian meddling in the election, uh, the connection that uh, the president's son had. First of all, what's your level of concern, and do you see evidence of collusion? Well, I think it's uh, something that we could get to the bottom of, and I really support both the intelligence committees in both sides of Congress and the oversight committees 
to really be looking into this and making sure that all the facts come out. You know, obviously, Donald Trump Jr. was the subject of a bait and switch by some Russian woman uh, lawyer. I forget her name. I can't pronounce it. Uh, But uh, she was actually trying to bait him to talk about sanctions. However, it was really uh, wrong on his part to take that meeting in the first place and very poorly advised to do so. Uh, I do not know if that amounts to collusion or not. You know, that would be a judicial or, or legal conclusion. But I say, let's have all the facts come out. Let's have the House and Senate committees look into this. And I know that there's a special counsel who's also looking at things. So let them go forward and get all the facts out on the table. That attorney, Natalia Veselnitskaya. Uh, Thanks so much, Congressman. Thanks, Congressman, for being with us. Good to talk with you. Republican Doug Lamborn represents Colorado's 5th Congressional District, which includes Colorado Springs. He's a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Hundreds of Coloradans have canceled their voter registrations recently. That's after Secretary of State Wayne Williams agreed to release voting records to a new presidential commission looking at possible election fraud. The request has drawn a lot of fire nationally, including from some of Williams' fellow secretaries of state. This request for data is being challenged in court right now. Wayne Williams is here to talk about this and about suggestions he'll make to this presidential commission when it comes to election changes. And a secretary, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me on today, Ryan. So a Denver elections official told the Denver Post this week that at least 472 voters had canceled their registrations there since July 3rd. That compares to 20 who had canceled in the previous two weeks, just for some contrast there. You've pointed out that the information you agreed to release to the commission is by law public. That said, if this drives people to withdraw from the voting ranks, isn't that an unintended and bad consequence? You know, I think it is a bad consequence of some of the adverse publicity that has been generated as a result of the request. We receive requests every day for voter roll data. It's public information. Some of it is. I want to emphasize that Social Security numbers, specific dates of birth, driver's license number, that information is private, is confidential, will not be produced to the Presidential Advisory Commission, and is not produced to the parties or others who obtain that information on a regular basis. Did the Presidential Commission want that? Kind of. Here's what they said. Uh, Please provide the publicly available voter roll data, including the following, if publicly available. And then they said among the things listed was social security number, if available. So they wanted it if it was available as modified by three statements. Uh, In Colorado, it's absolutely not available. Uh, And so you can spin that either way. We follow the law. And so just as when someone makes a request and and both the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the Libertarian Party, healthier Colorado with respect to Amendment 69 when they were getting it on the ballot, all of these groups regularly obtain this voter roll data. Do you think people who are canceling their voter registrations are overreacting? I think in many cases they are uh, because it doesn't do anything to remove your data from the list that have already been provided 
to every political party, to multiple candidates. That is, it's um, not retroactive in it, any way, but it, it, would, it, would it affect the information shared with this presidential commission, which has not happened yet, by the way, because of this wending its way through the courts? Right. We have not provided it. We, the requester asked us to delay, and so we will delay. Uh, Colorado law normally requires us to give it within three days, but if someone asks for a longer period of time, uh, we can certainly comply with that request. So we're not going to give it until they come back and ask for it. Um, I think one of the things to remember in Colorado is it's extraordinarily easy to re-register. And so an individual may decide to take their name off the books for a brief period of time and then re-register in advance of the November election. But to be clear, if they do that in light of the presidential request, um, is will their information not be shared? In other words, is that an effective way of dealing with this? Uh, it is one of the ways. Uh, the other way, if you meet the requirements of Colorado law, is to become a confidential voter. Right. Uh, that's designed for people who don't want their information public for fear of safety, legitimate safety concerns. That's a better process if that's what actually is happening because then you stay registered as a voter. Let me go back to the other point I was making, though, which is as a uh, state that makes it extraordinarily easy for people to register. We have the highest percentage of eligible voters who are registered in the country. Uh, You can do that online at GoVoteColorado.com. You can text CO to to vote. There's lots of ways to easily register. And you can even walk into a polling place for any of the couple weeks of an election uh, and register at that time. So it's not the same consequence that it is in other states who have restrictive ways to register to vote. That is to say, it's easy to re-register. It's uh-huh. extraordinarily easy. So critics say that this presidential commission's real motive is to suppress legitimate voters, or that it could happen perhaps by mistake. So say, for instance, the federal government cross-checks names on the Colorado list against a national list of people who are in the country illegally. The names match. But the person in Colorado is actually here legally and has the right to vote, but gets, you know, struck from the rolls. Or maybe a voter is intimidated by the fact that their information is being shared and decides not to register. I mean, is that in effect what's happening when you have almost 500 people in one Colorado county canceling their registrations? So first, they're canceling it in response to a campaign from folks to... um, encourage, I think, some of this behavior, which is a sad thing. You think this is being uh, improperly po- politicized? I think it has been politicized very definitely uh, because this same information is asked and sought for every single day. We provided it's an EX003 report. It's a $50 report that anybody can get. And if you look at last fall, for example, CBS4 got a copy They ran that against the Social Security Death Index, and they found ballots that had been turned in for people who were deceased. A prosecution actually today, uh, as we're speaking, uh, one of these individuals who had cast ballots for her deceased parents has a court appearance in Colorado Springs. Uh, So there is information that can be used, but it's important not to cancel someone or to take any action because just the names are the same. And and I would note, I've got a name like Wayne Williams. There are many Wayne Williamses in the country, uh, and no federal commission, no federal government, no outside party can cancel any voter in Colorado. In Colorado, we require minimum matching criteria to exist before anyone 
is ever removed from the voting roll. And that's not enough. The information being provided that's publicly available is not enough to do that in Colorado. We're speaking with Colorado Secretary of State Wayne Williams. I think what I hear you saying is that if people are to take issue with this, they ought not take issue with you, but with state law. We follow the law, and I think the the Denver Post, the Grand Junction Sentinel have both written editorials noting that we're just following the law. And you're right. My job is to follow the law. As Secretary of State, I don't get to pick and choose who I give information to. I follow the Colorado Open Records laws. And yet you have now an opponent in the race for your reelection who is making this an issue. Do you think this is going to be the defining issue of the Secretary of State's race? No. I think the defining issue will be who's actually run elections, who's worked uh, to develop support from individuals. That's why a number of county clerk and recorders who are Democrats are supporting my re-election in this race. The Department of Homeland Security said it believed Russian hackers targeted voter registration systems in more than 20 states last fall. Uh, One argument against this White House panel's request is that a national database could be vulnerable to attack, you know, essentially a one-stop shop for hackers. Does does that concern you? Uh, anyone who thinks that doesn't understand what is actually being submitted, it is simply a list of a temporary time. Changing that list, hacking that list does zero, does absolutely nothing in any state in the country. In the states. And so in order to affect a voter registration in any state, you actually have to penetrate that state's cybersecurity. Any sense that Colorado's voter registration was targeted last fall? Uh, We are scanned on a regular basis. We were not one of the 21 states identified by the Department of Homeland Security. We work extraordinarily hard to ensure the security of our data in the voter registration list. Important to note that hacking that, even if it was successful, would not change anyone's vote because that's a separate system from the election systems on which people vote and on which ballots are tabulated. Those systems are not connected to the internet. We're going to talk in just a moment about a new system Colorado is adopting to ensure that the system is safe. Um, But I I do want to ask a, a kind of fundamental question about this White House Uh, fraud uh, commission task force. You know, President Trump has said that as many as 5 million people voted illegally in the 2016 election. But many experts have said that just isn't the case, that there's not evidence for that. Uh, Do you have some evidence to the contrary? Colorado has, and this we have looked at things very closely here. We have great processes in place. I've seen no evidence of vote fraud on that scale. We have seen evidence of some vote fraud. Uh, but nowhere on the scale that has been referenced. So is a commission like this at the federal level a solution in search of a problem? You know, I think any time there is an issue that people have concerned about, it's appropriate to take a look at the matter. I think and my hope, based on the fact that there are a number of secretaries of state, including three presidents of the National Association, two of whom are Democrats on this commission, is that they will actually look at the data that's there and will uh, help resolve some of the extreme arguments on both sides that there's no voter fraud or that there are millions. There is a new state law here in Colorado regarding election security, and it will make us the first state in the country to use a risk-limiting audit to double-check election results after the votes have initially been counted. 
Uh, in layman's terms, how does that work? And I understand some software is being rolled out soon about this. So there's a couple things we're doing to ensure elections are secure. One of them, I adopted new election standards that require a paper ballot for any new machine. 54 of our states, 64 counties have already moved to this new system that has a paper ballot record in every instance. Like a printout, like a receipt? Like a not a, an actual the actual ballot. So even if you use a touchscreen, what prints out is a paper ballot. Uh so we can verify it. Then the new system that we're using for the risk-limiting audit uh, will scientifically determine random ballots to pick. It'll be the 38th ballot in box six or something like that in each county. And that county will then have to pull that ballot and ensure, based on an actual hand review, that the machine tabulated it accurately. That will provide folks a higher level of security than we've had before here in Colorado. And this is trailblazing in some regards? It is. Uh, in the past, we haven't had the ability to actually identify specific ballots. We've said, go grab this box or something like that, which was an audit and is a good process. But this is a better process established by the legislature a few years ago. We're implementing it now in Colorado. 2017 will be the first election to have that. All right. What recommendations, if any, will you make to this presidential commission um, about how elections could be better conducted uh, across the country? So the first and and foremost of those deals with cybersecurity issues. The Department of Homeland Security has had a policy of notifying what they call victims, which means the local governments involved, but not notifying the states. So they would notify a county that their election system may have been attacked But they wouldn't tell the state about that information. I think it's absolutely critical. This is something that all of my colleagues across the country agree with, is that secretaries of state or the chief election official needs to be told if there are vulnerabilities, if there are attacks within their state. So that's one of the recommendations we're going to look at. Uh, There are some uh, outdated uh, audit requirements for old equipment that has been depreciated, that's expensive, that doesn't make sense. Uh, that I think needs to be reformed. Um, Most people, when they update their data with the government, also want their voter registration changed. That's critical here in Colorado where we mail out ballots to every single voter. Uh, We can't get from the federal government information when someone tells the federal government their address has changed. And for a lot of people, they don't distinguish between the jury summons they got from the federal court in which they said, this isn't where I live anymore, and then they think that their ballot will go to the right place. We need to make sure that that process works better. So those are some of the recommendations we're going to make. Wayne Williams, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Ryan, for having me on today. He's Colorado's Secretary of State. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. At one time, he was considered a rising star in state Republican circles. Then accusations swirled about affairs with co-workers and favoritism in the sheriff's department. Some citizens called for his resignation. 
Now, former El Paso County Sheriff Terry Makita is claiming victory. A jury this week acquitted him of three counts in his corruption trial. On the remaining counts, they failed to agree, which means a partial mistrial. Prosecutors must decide what's next. Lance Benzel of the Colorado Springs Gazette has been covering the trial and joins us from the Springs. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. This case has drawn a lot of attention partly because of the nature of the charges, but also because of the character at the center of it all, Terry Makita. Tell us about his tenure in office before these allegations came up, would you? Terry Makita was an extremely popular sheriff in El Paso County. He was elected three times uh, by commanding margins. Uh, in 2012, he, he leveraged his popularity to persuade voters to approve a tax increase um, to hire more deputies. And that was sort of seen as uh, a reflection of his popularity in the community. He managed to uh, to get voters here to approve uh, a tax measure, which uh, is no easy feat. He was the public face uh, of the of the effort to fight the Black Forest Fire in 2013. He delivered daily news updates that uh, many people found uh, of great comfort. Um, and he was an ardent defender of gun rights, which uh, made him a champion of, of Second Amendment proponents here in El Paso County. For those not familiar with the political landscape there, getting a tax measure passed in El Paso County is something of a feat because it's a fairly conservative part of the state that uh, often sides with smaller government. When did the allegations against uh, the sheriff begin to surface? Well, I think that there were signs of trouble as early as 2010, um, more rumors than anything. It wasn't until May of 2014 that there was a tipping point at the sheriff's office, and that came when three of his commanders, top members of the brass, uh, submitted an equal opportunity commission complaint um, alleging all manner of offenses uh, by Makita. Uh, accusing him of having sexual relationships with subordinates and rewarding them with raises and, and plum positions, uh, accusing him of, of berating employees who had crossed him, just uh, lots of sort of general workplace complaints um, about uh, the time under Makita. And, and those employment complaints led him to leave office two weeks early in December 2014. Um, the criminal allegations did not surface uh, until May of, of 2016, well after his time in office. And, and that brought about a whole new round of, of some fairly shocking allegations. Indeed. Uh, I'll say that I think the county did settle later uh, some of those EEOC complaints. That's right. Yeah. A, a number of deputies who filed complaints against Makita did receive settlements uh, prior to the, to the criminal charges getting filed. So to those criminal charges, the jury acquitted Makita of three counts, uh, let's see, involving witness tampering, charges of official misconduct, but it couldn't reach unanimous verdicts on four other counts. Just give us an example of a charge the jury acquitted him of, first off. Sure. Uh, So some of the most serious charges he faced were witness tampering and conspiracy to commit witness tampering. Those were both felonies, and had he been convicted, he, he could have faced up to two to six years in prison um, together on those counts. They, they alleged that Makita 
coerced a domestic violence victim to recant her allegations um, to benefit uh, a friend of Makita, who was a deputy at the time. Hmm. Those are allegations that a jury rejected uh, completely, and they, they tossed both of those felony counts. What is an example of a charge they were unable to decide? Some of the most serious charges remaining against Sheriff Makita um, are extortion and conspiracy to commit extortion. Again, both felonies. And those charges allege that uh, he threatened a jail health care contractor that he would yank a $5 million a year contract unless they terminated an employee who prosecutors say had crossed him in a, in a couple of important ways. And the question then is whether the prosecutors will move forward on some of those charges. What, what are you hearing? What's the timeline for that? The the lead prosecutor in this case is from the 18th Judicial District. Uh, he's actually the assistant district attorney in Arapahoe County. And they prosecuted this case uh, because the local district attorney, Dan May, recused the office. Mm. Um, and as far as the decision whether to retry Makita, uh, the lead prosecutor, Mark Hurlbert, says that that's under discussion. They expect to have a better idea uh, within the next couple of days. And Makita is due for a court hearing at 9 a.m. Monday where we're expecting a little more clarity. That's a conference call, by the way. So the sheriff himself is not expected in court. But we do expect some kind of clarity on whether he'll be tried again. It it could be a politically fraught um, decision. Why? Well... (sighs) I've spoken to a couple of political science professors um, who say that Makita still has a very strong base of support in El Paso County. And when it comes to Republican politics, you need to keep El Paso County voters happy. Uh, Bob Levy, a retired professor of political science at Colorado College, says that the Republican Party wants this case to go away. Um, And so this is all on the plate of the 18th Judicial District at a time when the elected DA there, George Brockler, is is running for governor. Interesting. What do you think the effect of this has been on the community? That's very difficult to say. Um, We have every reason to believe this was a very closely watched trial. Uh, The Gazette, for example, on Twitter, we provided live updates throughout the trial, something like 2,500 tweets, and uh, we had fairly heavy readership of this. Um, In terms of, you know, how the acquittals registered, the reaction's been somewhat muted from from the community, as, as far as I'm concerned. I'll say this is not the only trial associated with the case, right? I think, what, two former employees of his are also under indictment? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the indictment comes out in May of 2016, and it and it uh, it also charges former Under Sheriff Paula Presley and former Sheriff's Commander John San Augustine, uh, accusing them of playing roles in in some of the allegations that uh, that Makita had faced. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate your sharing your reporting with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. He's Lance Benzel and covered the trial of former El Paso County Sheriff Terry Makita for the Colorado Springs Gazette. (music) 
My next guest is one half of the most successful musical duo of all time. Consider these numbers. 18 studio albums, 11 live ones, 60 million records sold, and six number one singles, including this one from 1982. Oh, Watch out, boy. Oh, that's going to be stuck in my head all day. John Oates met Daryl Hall in 1967 at a Philadelphia ballroom where each had performed separately. They decided to combine forces brought together by a shared love of Philly soul, doo-wop, and Motown. They have had their ups and downs over the years, but lately they've been riding a new wave of popularity. They'll perform Saturday night at Fiddler's Green Amphitheater in Greenwood Village. Meanwhile, John Oates has written a memoir, Change of Seasons, and he is on the phone with me. Welcome to the program. No, thanks for having me. You have a really deep connection to Colorado. You call this state your destiny, and uh, it began with a ski trip to Aspen in 1968. You write about seeing a young John Denver perform in a bar in Snowmass. Fast forward to the early 1990s when you decided to move to Aspen full-time. In the book, you call it a rebirth um, what in your life brought you to Aspen permanently? Well, it's it's a bit of a long story, but uh, to, to kind of make it short, uh, uh, as the 80s were winding to an end, uh, there, both Daryl and I had uh, seen the writing on the wall, and we realized we couldn't sustain the type of popularity, this mega popularity that we had during that period of time for about seven or eight years. And we both kind of decided to, it's probably better to take a little break, not necessarily, uh, you know, um, we weren't going to break up the band, so to speak, but we just thought it's better to take a break and see what happens and find a new way forward. Uh, but during that that exact same period of time, um, I was going through a divorce and I went through some financial issues with management and the people who were handling, handling our business. And quite frankly, I wasn't paying enough attention to the business side of things and running around the world being a pop star. And uh, when it all all kind of collapsed, I um, I found Colorado uh, as my refuge, and it really uh, saved me. I decided to leave the East Coast, where I was born, and you know spent most of my life. Sold everything I had, um, started over again in a little cabin in, in Aspen, and uh, subsequently, uh, after hiking and skiing the mountains and. Uh, I met a met a gal and got remarried, had a kid, built a house, and uh, really started my life over again. Yeah, therein lies, I think, the the destiny. Uh, but you wrote that essentially you were broke. Um, you had all of the well, all well, of the toys. Well, well yeah. <laughs> let's 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 not get too too. It's it's too easy to say that. I'm I'm really sorry, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I was I didn't have any cash, but I had a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and I had a lot of stuff. So I'm talking about airplanes, collection of classic cars, two apartments in New York, apartment, a house in Connecticut, and a condo in Aspen. So I wasn't exactly broke, but um, I literally didn't have any cash. And so what I proceeded to do was sell everything I owned, literally cleaned house and started over again. You were sort of in debt to the record company. Like they had advanced you a lot of money. This is part That's of, correct. yeah, you weren't minding your P's and Q's financially. I think at one point in the book, you write that... You you never really wrote your own checks or had any sense of the money being spent. 
I never, I never paid a bill. I never used a credit card or never used a checkbook for my entire, you know, young adult life until the late eighties, till the early nineties, to be honest with you. Um, when I wanted something, I just called the office and said, Hey, I want a car or I want this car or whatever. Or I want to buy an apartment. And, uh, I used just bought it. Um, where the money came from, it was bit of a mystery. And since it was rolling in and such large quantities, I never questioned it. It's a, it's not, listen, it, you know, it seems kind of, I guess, you know, to the average person, it seems crazy and extravagant and, and, you know, kind of irresponsible. And it was, but in the world of music and rock and roll, it's a, it's an age old story. It's yeah. been going back, you know, to the beginning of the fifties, you know, I'm certainly not the only artist to ever experience this. John Oates, I did love the detail in your book that the first time you were in Aspen for that skiing trip, um, you asked where you could score some pot, and they pointed you to a rundown hotel called the Jer- <laughs> called the Jerome, um, which of course today is like super fancy. And That's in '68, right. you still saw horses tied out front. Oh yeah. They used to, uh, there was always a couple guys with, um, you know, usually carrying guns uh, on, you know, in a holster and tying their horses up in front of the J bar. And, the, you know, the wallpaper was peeling off the walls. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of a crash pad, really. <laughs> My how things change. You ended up buying a, a rundown log cabin in Woody Creek um, with a red 1975 Pontiac Grandville convertible parked inside. Inside. <laughs> yes. Well, it was in the in the little log cabin that was the uh, what was left over from a house that had burned down many years ago. Um, the, it was basically a you know a, a little ranch um, with uh, you know all run down, tons of thistle, and a little broken down horse barn in this cabin. And you're right, inside the cabin was this red convertible. Uh, I happened to ask the real estate agent, who was a friend of mine, uh, who owned the convertible, and he said, "Well, your neighbor Hunter Thompson across the way." <laughs> Uh, I said, well, okay, great. I said, why is he keeping his car in a piece of property that he doesn't own? And he just, the real estate agent just looked at me. He said, it's Woody Creek. You'll, you'll figure this out. It's a different kind of place. So <laughs> I did learn over the years that Woody Creek is a very unique place in the world. Did Hunter wind up getting his car out of your home? Well, we were going to use that little cabin as our um to live in while we built the rest of our house. And when the day came, when the carpenters were arriving to start work on the cabin, um, the the car was still in there and I had left numerous notes, but he never responded. So I jump started the car. Luckily it had the keys in it. Uh, and, uh, I drove it up onto his lawn and parked it in in front of his front door and just left it there. And 20 years went by. He never said a word to me. Were you friends? Yeah, we were, we were, well, we were casual friends. Mm-hmm. We didn't hang out a lot. It was cool because, you know, he, he kind of uh, slept during the day and worked at night, and I kind of worked during the day and slept at night. So, um, but we'd get together on social occasion. He was always very, uh, very, uh, very nice. And uh, I think if he liked you, he was really a, a real Southern gentleman. You know, he's, he was a guy from Kentucky, and I, I, I think I kind of saw through the, uh, the Hunter S. Thompson character, you know, which he liked to be. And he enjoyed being that guy, you know, with the whiskey and the cigarette holder and the motorcycle and, you know, and the drugs. Uh, that was his, his persona. And he could be that, but he could also be someone else, too. So um, I, enjoy, I enjoyed him, and I was always a big fan of his writing. And I know that you would watch football games together. It, it was about this, yeah. this same time, you know, this time of real transition for you, that you shaved off your famous mustache, John Oates. Um, yeah, and it you, was a, a wholesale life change. 
<laughs> you devote a chapter in the book to this. What what prompted you to shave it off? <laughs> Not many people vote, uh, devote an entire chapter of their book to their mustache, um, but I felt it was warranted. I, um, it, it, it in a weird way, it kind of represented the guy I was, the guy who made all the financial mistakes and was irresponsible and got a divorce and and just really didn't pay attention to things. And I think uh, that that whole financial collapse and the divorce and all the things that happened to me were just a, a huge wake up call. And it was kind of like get get your get your act together here, man. This is like. You know, you you know, you you gotta you gotta grow up. Basically, growing up, and the mustache, in some weird way, was symbolic of of that other guy. And I didn't want to be that other guy anymore. And uh, so I shaved it off. I guess it was kind of like a ritualistic cleansing of sorts. <laughs> I was surprised to learn that the success Hall and Oates has had did not happen instantly. I mean, in the early no. 70s, you recorded three albums for Atlantic Records, but they didn't s- mm-hmm. sell very well. And you had no hit no, singles didn't. out of them. No, we had a semi-hit with a song called She's Gone, but it really wasn't a big, big hit. Um, you know, interesting, and I look back at that period of time, and I'm just, I feel so blessed and fortunate to have come up in an era where artists were allowed to develop and make creative mistakes, which was really it's essential for any creative person to try and experiment and do things and fail. Uh, I think you learn much more from failure than you do from success. And fortunately, we had a situation where the record company stuck by us because they believed in our talent. And it wasn't just about the uh, chart numbers or, or sales numbers. So um, not un- very unlike, uh, unfortunately, the environment that many young musicians find themselves in today. Mm. Well, your first big hit in 76 was the song Sarah Smile. When I feel cold, you warm me. And when I feel I can't go on, you come and hold me. It's you and me forever. I can hear some of that ballroom in there. What do, what do you think of that song when you hear that 40 years later? Well, first of all, I think it's really a, an amazing, amazingly simple, elegant song. Um, but what I, uh, what I really hear is how young Daryl's voice sounds. Uh-huh. Uh, it sounds like little kids singing to me. Um, and uh, it's just a wonderful song that, uh, you know, is, is here again, simple in its elegance. I do want to ask you about the first song we heard, Man Eater. I understand that mm-hmm. you got you got the idea. You write about this in the book after meeting a woman at a bar in New York. Yeah, um, it was a place we used to hang out. It was kind of a trendy '80s kind of place. A lot of actors and models and musicians would hang out there. And uh, she was a big time fashion model. She came in and basically just in, incredibly, you know, took over the room with her presence. But at the same time, she had a foul. She had a really foul mouth, and she started began to tell these really disgusting, dirty jokes, which I thought was really interesting. And, and I kind of, I, I her great beauty was uh, in, a high, in a high contrast to her filthy vocabulary, which I thought was cool. Uh, and uh, I decided that she would chew you up if you ever, you know, got a chance <laughs> to be with someone like that. Mm-hmm. And I had no, no, I had no. Uh, you know, romantic relationship with her at all. Uh, she was just a, you know, she's just this thing that happened. And uh, I, you know, extrapolated from there and uh, began to write, oh, oh, here she comes. Watch out, boy, she'll chew you up. She's a man eater. Uh, and then Daryl and I got together and we finished the song. 
We have just about 30 seconds. So very briefly, I couldn't help but notice that your home in Woody Creek is for sale. Are you are you leaving Colorado? Yeah. Well, I don't plan on leaving Colorado, but I need to downsize. Uh, we've we've uh, migrated uh, east toward Nashville over the past uh, seven or eight years. Uh, our son lives in uh, D.C., and uh, my father's still in Pennsylvania, and he's 94. And I wanted to be a little bit closer to them, and uh, my travel... My travel schedule is so intense at this point now that Nashville's central location just makes it a lot easier to travel from. So um, that's where we are right now, and uh, I love Colorado. I never want to leave it, but just having two huge homes and a ranch in Colorado with uh, all the things that go on with a ranch is just uh, really just too much. I want to simplify it as, as the years go on. John Oates performs Saturday night at Fiddler's Green Amphitheater with his longtime collaborator, Daryl Hall. Oates has a new memoir called Change of Seasons, and it comes with a CD. Here's one of the songs on it, Change of Season. This is Colorado Matters. Oh, I, I, I need a change of seasons. 